Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word, if you have it with you, or if you would like to get a Bible from the back. Open up a copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John. Once again, as we continue our series through this book, our focus tonight will be on chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3, as I have said. But I'd like to begin reading this evening in chapter 2, verse 26, which we covered last week. But the reading of which will give us the connection, which happens here, and also kind of the flow of the context. First John, beginning in chapter 2, verse 26. This is God's word. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We Know that you have given it to us so that we may know what we are to believe about you, that we may know what we are to do, the things which you call us to. We thank you that you've given us your word for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped. We pray that now as we come to your word, you would thoroughly equip us, that you would teach us what we are to know about you, about our sonship which we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation we have in him. We pray that you would show us this in your words that you might be glorified. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We've come to the end of John chapter 2, to the beginning of John chapter 3. And the apostle John has brought us through a a whole slew of teachings meant to center our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and meant to cause us to examine our lives, meant to help the believer to grow in their assurance of salvation. Remember about two months ago when we began this study, we 
started at the very beginning, the best place to start in the book of the Bible. And John focused our, our gaze on that which was from the beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he led us through this examination and this teaching that we're to walk in the light. We're to examine our, our lives according to that. We're, we're to see, am I walking in the light as, as God is in the light? Is my confession and my lifestyle matching up or, or is there something going wrong here? And he, he reminds us that our confession and our life don't match up because we still have that remnant of sin. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to confess our sins to God and God forgives us because he loves to forgive. And then John reminds us of Christ, our, our advocate and our propitiation. He reminds us that we are not saved to be islands, individuals, all on our lonesome, but saved to be a part of the community of God. And thus we're to love one another. We're supposed to love the brethren. John encourages saints for the fruit which he saw in them, the fruit which is evident in the lives of believers throughout the ages. And then he began this series of warnings for Christians. We're not supposed to love the world. We're we're supposed to be aware of this worldliness which so easily entangles us and entraps us. And then last week, he reminded us of the fact that false teachers arise in the church. They lead people astray. They seek to deceive. And he ends that section with reminders to abide, abide. Let the gospel abide in you and and you abide in the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit, the anointing which you've received abides in you and the spirit teaches you and guides you. He directs your gaze back to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. And then this evening, John directs our gaze once again back to the Lord Jesus Christ, but this time with a little bit different of uh, an event in view. You see, John has has been redirecting our gaze back to Christ, back to Christ uh, because of things happening in the present, our sin, our need to confess the fact that we have a Savior now. Here in our text this evening, John reminds us that right now is not the only thing important in the Christian life. Indeed, something is going to happen in the future. Christ is going to return. And so we should abide in Christ now because of this eschatological hope, which we have this, this hope in the end of days, this hope which we have when Christ comes back. And we, we should be bold when Christ returns. Christians should have boldness at Christ's return because they are beloved children of God who are being made more like Christ. You, dear saint, should have boldness, confidence at Christ's return because you, if you're trusting in Christ, are one of God's beloved children. God is working in you through the Spirit to make you more like Christ.
Christ. This is great hope and assurance. Both now and as we look and hope and pray, come Lord Jesus. How does John do that? Well, I'd like us to look at our text this evening. Three different divisions, as you see in your bulletin. Uh, There's kind of three sections in these five verses. First, uh, the boldness of sonship. Chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. John speaks about uh, the boldness which we should have at Christ's coming, the boldness of sons. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, John speaks of the basis of our sonship, the blessing of our sonship or childship. And then finally, in verses 2 and 3, John speaks of the great benefits of this sonship. What the Lord God does for his children and what he will do for his children. The great glory that he makes his people more and more like Christ through the Spirit. So those are the ways we, I would like for us to look at our text this evening. Boldness, basis, benefit. Through this, I hope that we will see the great glory of this truth. That we are sons, indeed, of the living God, children of the living God, whom he loves and whom he is working in. With that in mind, let's now turn to the word of God and, and open it up and see what it has to say about this great truth. The boldness we should have in Christ because of our sonship. Verses uh, 28 and 29 of chapter 2. John writes there, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We see the first thing that John does here in verse 28 speak to us about the fact that abiding in Christ results in boldness at his coming. Look at the, verse, the, the, the beginning of verse 28. He writes there, And now little children abide in him. Now, as we read the previous section, you know that John had spoken a great deal about abiding. Abiding, he tells us again to abide in him, in Christ. And you remember that abiding in him means essentially to have union and communion with Christ. We must have union with the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit through faith, joined together with him as, as the vine is, is joined to uh, its branches, we being the branches and Christ being the vine, grafted into him. And abiding with Christ also speaks of the communion which we should have with Christ, fellowship with him. A daily fellowship, even. We, as the people of Christ, are not merely grafted in so that we can sit back and and relax and say, well, the Lord Jesus is doing all of this for us. No, we say, uh, this is the one in whom I have life, my Savior, the one whom I love. And, And in that, we seek to have fellowship with him. We want to know what he tells us in his word. 
We want to speak to him in prayer. We want to rest in him and, and enjoy him as our Savior, as our Lord, as our elder brother. And so John reminds us that we're to abide in Christ, but the purpose which John wants us to have, or which John has for reminding us to abide in Christ here, is so that when Christ appears, we may have confidence. The Greek word here, translated confidence, can mean courage in the face of of something. I think that's part of what John is getting at here. So we have courage when Christ returns. No fear. We say, our Savior has, has returned. He's come for his bride. We have nothing to fear because he's our Savior. But this word confidence can also actually mean having joy in the face of something. It's a joyful courage, a joyful boldness. And isn't that the, uh, the resonating of your heart when you think of Christ's return? Do, do you think of Christ's return and, and say, well, I sure hope he doesn't come back right now because I'm just not ready? Or do you think, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, I would love to see his glory displayed in the heavens. I would love to hear the shout of the archangel and the trump sounding. I would love to see my Savior as he comes. No, our, our heart's cry is, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we love him. Because we who are trusting in Christ, are abiding in him, have this confidence, this joyful boldness that our Savior will indeed return. And, and when we see him, we will be with him. This is the kind of joy that maybe is akin to uh, the feelings which a child would have when their parents say, all right, we're going out for a few hours. We want you to do the laundry and the dishes, and we'd like for it all to be done when we come home. Well, a child who gets all of those tasks finished before their parents come home Look at the return of their parents with confidence. There's no shame. They're joyful their parents have come back. Say, welcome home, mom and dad. Whereas a child who perhaps has not done those things is slightly less joyful when their parents return. This doesn't say anything about the parents' love for the child. Parents still love their children, whether they do all the tasks they're supposed to or not. Although I suppose there's a bit of chastisement, which happens. But the fact of the matter is, when we are abiding in Christ, looking to him in faith, walking in the ways uh, that he has called us to walk, we look to his return as the most hopeful and joyful thing which ever will happen. So we may have confidence. And John says uh, he wants us to have confidence and not shrink back from Christ in shame at his coming. He wants us to not be ashamed. Who are those people who are ashamed at Christ's coming? It's those who are unprepared. You remember the parable of uh, the foolish virgins who did not get oil for their lamps, and when the bridegroom appeared, they were not able to come into the feast. Or that one poor individual who... 
did not have wedding garments when he came into the marriage supper. And he was asked, friend, where are your wedding garments? And he said, I don't have them. And so he was kicked out. John wants his readers to not experience these things. Which is why he calls you to abide in Christ, to trust in Christ, to look to Christ as the one who clothes us in his righteousness. So that we will not shrink back, so that we will not be ashamed, so that we may have boldness, confidence, joy at the coming of our Savior. That is the call. Abide in Christ. Abide in him. And that results in boldness. Abiding in Christ also results in boldness or or assurance concerning our status as regenerated children of the Father. Look at verse 29. John writes there, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now John uses one of those constructions where when he says, if you know something, the implication is you know it. He's not saying maybe you know this, maybe you don't. He's saying if you know it, And I know you know this because we've been teaching you these things. You know Christ is righteous. And so you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You may be just as confident that those who have the fruit of righteousness are members of the family of God. Those who practice righteousness, those who who bear righteous fruit, who bear the righteous fruit of abiding are a product, result of the Spirit's working righteousness in their life. The fruit of righteousness demonstrates both to us and and those around us that we are born of God, that we have been regenerated so that when we are following Jesus, abiding in him, united to him, communing with him, walking after him, when we're living the way in which he calls us to live, we resemble him. We, we bear that family resemblance. Maybe you've seen family pictures of, of people you know, and as soon as you see them together with, with their whole family in that picture, you say, wow, they, they really are related. They all look so similar. You might be able to pick it out if you saw a person at a store one day and their relative at another store the next day. You might say, oh, they look kind of similar. But when you see them together, you see a huge family resemblance. When we bear the fruit of righteousness by the work of the Spirit in our life, we resemble Christ. We look like our elder brother. We look like our heavenly father. And that demonstrates to us, he has truly indeed made us alive together with Christ and adopted us into his family. It's, it's a wonderful evidence of our salvation in Christ. And that's why John states this. The thrust of this statement is essentially, let your life be evidence of your status as children of God. You know Christ is righteous. You know what he's called you to do. Live that way. Be like 
your elder brother. Be like your heavenly father. And in doing that, be confident in Christ of your salvation. This is the boldness of sonship which we are given in Christ. Well, it's as though John begins to write that and then all of a sudden his, his heart and mind are, are lifted to uh, this anthem of wonder and, and praise in Christ at our next point, chapter 3, verse 1, the basis of our sonship, the blessing of our sonship. John writes that we may be sure everyone practices who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born of God. And then he proclaims, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The basis of our sonship and the basis of the boldness which we have in Christ as sons is the love of the Father. When John says, see what kind of love, he's making an an exclamation. Uh, Behold, marvel, wonder. Look at what God has done for us. Look at the kind of love God has shown to us. Think of, of the extravagance of God's love, its bountifulness. Think of all that he has done in blessing us in Christ with all of the blessings in the heavenly places. This is a wondrous love. Can you imagine? Can you, can you fathom how great this love is for us? This is God's predestinating love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. This is God's great sacrificial and giving love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In the second verse, this is a preserving love that whoever believes in Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. This love of God is magnificent and wonderful it's, it's amazing. And, and John here marvels and wants us to marvel as well in this great love which the Father has given to us. And we ought to. I think too often we, we make two very different mistakes when it comes to God's love and understanding. The first is we say, well, yep, God so loved the world. And we take it for granted and we just kind of set it to the side. We say, yes, I know God's loving. That's one of his attributes, and we move on. No, we should, we should marvel. We should say, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? But the other extreme, the, the other mistake is, I think, denying that the Father loves us at all. And maybe we don't deny it outright, but practically we do. We think, well, God the Father is the wrathful one. He's the scary one. But Jesus is the loving one. He gave his life for me. No, the Father so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. It's the love of the father that is the predestinating love which we have. They're not set against each other at all. The triune God is a great and loving God. Righteous, holy, just. And those all make his love that much more amazing. The father loves his children. Christ loves his bride. Spirit loves the church. This is amazing and wondrous. We ought to think more of it. We ought to think higher thoughts of it. We ought to praise God for his love more. Realizing that he really indeed does truly love us. It's not a meaningless statement. It's not just a warm, fuzzy platitude. It's God's great grace in action towards us. And should cause us to rejoice John speaks of the love of God and speaks of us being children of God on the basis of that son. He says that we have both a title and reality. He says we are called children of God and so we are. We don't just have the title. We are made children of God truly, really. It's the reality of all that sonship entails. The father's love for us, the father's chastisement of us when we disobey, which is really a good thing as it brings us back to Christ, brings us to a place of repentance and causes us to look back to Christ again. Our inheritance that we have in God is all part of the sonship which we have. And and this is, too, a great and marvelous thing. It's not just a meaningless title, but a real true status that we have I don't know if any of you have ever seen those uh, advertisements that you can buy. I think it's something like a square foot of land in Scotland. In Scotland, if you're a property owner, technically you are a laird. It's just a word that means property owner. And so people can buy a square foot and then can call themselves a laird of whatever their property is. And so they have essentially a meaningless title. But this is very different from actually being the heir uh, to a royal family, to, to a noble family, where you have both title and then you have uh, lands which accompany it, responsibilities which accompany it. And I am not up on uh, politics in the UK, but I think there are still at least some chairs in the House of Lords which are hereditary. Our, our British friends can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but the fact of the matter is there's a big difference between just having a title because you bought a square foot of land in Scotland and having the reality of being a noble's child. The same thing is true of us. We don't just have a nice piece of paper. No, we have the reality of sonship. We are really, indeed, truly children of the living God. And the result of this is simultaneously maybe distressing, but also a a good thing. John says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He ties this into the fact of our sonship. 
The world doesn't recognize us because it doesn't know God. Because it didn't know Christ. He, he came into the world and the world did not receive him. When we trust in Christ, when we are regenerated, when we're justified, when we're adopted, when all of these things happen, we are moved immediately from citizenship in the city of destruction to the celestial kingdom, to God's family. And so the the citizens of the city of destruction no longer recognize us. St. Augustine, when he was a young man, lived a very immoral life. One day, a, a woman which he had known in his youth came up to him, said, Augustine, Augustine, it's, it's I. And he looked at her and responded, yes, but it's no longer I. Augustine recognized it. He'd been completely changed. He was no longer the same Augustine that he had been in his youth. No, he'd been redeemed, restored through the blood of Christ, and he was a completely different person. He was now a member of God's family. So he had no part and parcel with the rest of the world. And for that reason, the world does not know us. It doesn't recognize us. Because we are children of God, no longer children of wrath, children of the devil. And this sonship, this wondrous blessing of God, is God's means of working great and amazing things in our life, which is what John gets at in the last two verses of our text, the benefits of this sonship. In verses two and three, John writes there, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John starts here with the future benefit, a future blessing. Since, since he's already looked at the coming of Christ and this eschatological hope that we have, he returns to it to remind us of the future benefit of our glorification. You've probably read throughout scripture that sometimes... Uh, Our salvation's talked about as though it's in the past and sometimes as though it's in the present and sometimes as though it's in the future. And these are all true all at the same time because in our past, we have been justified. We've been given the righteousness of Christ and so in God's sight, we are righteous. We're being saved now because God is sanctifying us by his spirit. The power of sin It's removed in our life, and and God is slowly but surely by the Spirit removing the presence of sin in our lives, making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, making us more and more holy. But we will be saved in the future. That is that moment of time when all trace of sin is completely removed from us. Our glorification, either when we die on this earth and then immediately are in the presence of God or when Christ returns and we are made even as our Savior is. The benefit of of glorification, of the complete eradication of sin in our life, that is what God does for his children. 
John reminds us that we're God's children now, that it's a present reality. But he reminds us that there is something coming which is just grace upon grace upon grace. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. All trace of sin. We will have resurrected bodies, completely uh, renewed in all ways so that no longer is there any presence of sin in our life. And so then we can praise God more fully than, than we can praise him now. We're, we're still waiting for this final piece of our salvation, our, our glorification. But this should be so very encouraging to us. Because we know that we will. We will be purified from the very presence of sin. God has promised that we will be freed from the very presence of sin. We know that God is not done with us yet. We don't go on for eternity with this last little remnant. No, God will, will, promised, remove the very presence of sin from our lives because he loves us as his children. then John steps back, as it were, and says, yes, but God is purifying us even now. In verse 3, he writes, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself is pure. Present tense there, is purifying himself. Everyone who hopes in Christ Everyone who has placed his trust in Christ, everyone who is is abiding in Christ, purifies himself. How? Why? What? What does he mean by this? Well, you remember in Revelation chapter 7, when John sees this great vision of, of the multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We read there in, in Revelation 7 verses 13 and 14. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the ones who heard God's call from Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. These are the ones who have heard the gospel and because of the spirit working in their hearts to make them alive together with Christ, they trust in Christ. So they are purified. Their robes are washed. They're cleansed. They're regenerated. And the Lord is purifying them over and over and over. We, we confessed Psalm 51 together this morning. The psalmist there says, wash me, make me clean. Purify me. As we confess our sins to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we are trusting in Christ, the Lamb of God. He's doing all of the work, but it's credited to us. 
Christ is the one who purifies us. He's the one who, by his spirit, gives us faith. And yet when we exercise that faith and we trust in him, we are washing our robes in the blood of the lamb. It's the great mystery of Christ's great salvation, which he gives to us. We purify ourselves as he, Christ, is pure. We are conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ because God loves us and has made us his children. He will not leave us in the state in which we are, but by Christ, through his great salvation, we are made pure and holy, undefiled. And one day we'll have all traces of our sin nature removed from us so that we are completely and totally pure and holy to God. This is a marvelous, amazing, awe-inspiring thing which God has done for us. What do we do with it? Well, first and foremost, and I think probably what I've said over and over again is praise the Lord for it. Remember God's great love for you when you struggle with sin. Remind yourself that the Father loves his people, gave his son for all his chosen race. Look to Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you and trust him and rejoice and praise God for this great love which he has poured out on us. And then live in such a way as to give you great boldness at the return of Christ. Live in response to this great love. Let this move you to desire to do what God wants you to do. Let your status as children of God be evident in your lives and live in humble reliance upon the Spirit in the realization that you are a child of God and he calls you to live as his child. Or, if you are not a child of God, perhaps through our, our study of First John, you have said, I don't think that I am abiding in Christ. I don't think that I am trusting in Christ well, if you're not a child, if you're, if you're still a, a citizen of the city of destruction, what do you do? You flee to Christ. See what great love the Father has, that he would send his Son to die for sinners and to save them. See what love Christ has, that he loves to save sinners. And he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to Christ. Trust in him. Wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. He calls you to that. He says, repent, believe in me, trust in me, come to me. And this is a real true invitation. So then I exhort you, if you're not trusting in Christ, do so now. Go to him, even now, right now, in prayer. And ask him to save you, to cleanse you, to purify you, to make you a child of the true and living God, a child who, who may have boldness 
at the return of Christ on the basis of the adopting love which the Father shows with the benefit that you will be purified in the past and the present and one day in the future as a child of God. This is what the Lord promises to do for all who come to Christ. This is what John wants us to see in this text that we should have boldness at Christ's return because of God's great love for us. The love which saves us and makes his people more like Christ. Let's praise him for that. Let's rejoice in that because he's worthy of that praise because of this great love with which he has loved us. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for this great love which you have shown to us. We thank you for demonstrating this love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We marvel and we do praise you, O Lord, and we thank you that you have made us your children. We pray for those whom we know who are not trusting in Christ, are not abiding in him, who, who do not know the great love of God, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal it to them, that you would save them, that you would make them children of the living God. Help us, O Lord, to live as your children, practicing righteousness, even as Christ is righteous, confessing our sins to you, and trusting in him, that he by his spirit purifies his people and will glorify us at his return. Pray that you would do these things for your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen.